When a nuclear accident happens, one naturally turns to the government, the media, the industry for information on how to best protect one's health and safety. And we'd like to believe that's the best, most reliable thing to do. But then you hear a genuine nuclear expert, one who's lived through that very scenario in Japan after Fukushima, tell you... The Japanese government, the Japanese media, and of course, TEPCO, was not telling what was going on inside the plant. What was the danger, how they should protect themselves, etc. My experience during one month I stayed there is to see that when there is a nuclear disaster occurring, the people who are the first concerned by the disaster, the most at risk, they are not informed by the government or by the media. It's all lies, cover-up, denial. Everything is fine. Well, when you hear the ugly truth told that plainly from someone who knows, it's clear that you and I and everyone else are in the same seat, the seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, it's my delight to speak with French activist Hervé Courtois, an information powerhouse on Fukushima, as well as international nuclear stories, a position he's filled since the earliest days after that nuclear disaster began. What does it take to motivate someone to make more than seven years of massive, daily, trustworthy contributions to our info flow about Fukushima and nuclear situations around the world? The charming Monsieur Courtois finally reveals the source of his motivation and the path he took to become the outstanding information provider that he is. Plus, we will have numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, activist shoutouts, and more honest nuclear information than was either subpoenaed or sentenced this past week. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, December 18, 2018, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting off on the news this week with an update on the aftermath of the Woolsey fire from the greater Los Angeles area, which started at the Santa Susana Field Lab, 1,000 yards away from the site of a 1959 nuclear meltdown that may have released more radioactive iodine and other nuclides than any other accident in the United States. As was first announced with the news broken on nuclear hot seat number 386 from November 13, 2018, 
the nonprofit Fairwinds Energy Education is heading up a study of possible radioactive contamination from the Woolsey fire in the area within a 25-mile radius. Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds said, When state officials tell people not to worry and that nobody is at risk, it's not science, it's wishful thinking. It's reasonable to expect that the Woolsey fire released radiation left in the soil after the 1959 nuclear meltdown into the air. According to Physicians for Social Responsibility and Denise Duffield, government assurances that the fire did not risk heightened exposures to Santa Susana Field Lab contamination have been met with distrust and skepticism, in part because the very entities claiming that there was no toxic risk from the Santa Susana Field Lab fire are the ones responsible for contaminating it in the first place and breaching commitments to clean it up. Duffield went on to say, The agencies have failed us. They are putting out information that is scientifically impossible. If you can tell people that there is no risk, you should give us the measurements, methodology, and equipment used. The full protocol for collecting dust samples, if you live in this area, is available at NuclearHotSeat.com. We will again link to that information as a PDF download. And you can also find it on the website for Fairwinds Energy Education, which Fairwinds is spelled with an E. The five-stage study will look into dust and soil samples collected from around the site in homes and communities near the Santa Susana Field Lab and will take from four to five months and cost about $100,000, according to Fairwinds Gunderson. However, there will be no charge to those people who participate in this study, and all samples will be kept anonymous and identified only by GPS. Marco Kaltofen, a professor at Worcester Polytechnic Institute, who, along with his students, will be doing the testing of the samples, announced on December 6th that dust and ash samples have started to arrive from areas west of the fire, just north of Route 101, and were collected during or just after the fire. Testing has started. We'll also have a link up to an article about Marco Kaltofen and his work in an earlier article. It predates the Woolsey fire and was released on September 28, 2018 in the Los Angeles Times. It's entitled, Hidden Danger, Radioactive Dust is Found in Communities Around Nuclear Weapons Sites. In Tennessee, on December 12, a 4.4 magnitude earthquake registered about seven miles northeast of Decatur, Tennessee, and next to the Oak Ridge Nuclear Reservation Site. Oak Ridge Environmental Management, of course, reported almost immediately that the Oak Ridge Reservation's nuclear cleanup sites came through the earthquake undamaged. They said, due to the earthquake's relatively low intensity, we do not see any signs of impact or expect it to have any effect on any contaminated areas. To which I offer four words, the first two of which are North Anna. In August of 2015, a 5.8 earthquake struck only eight miles away from the North Anna nuclear power station. Despite immediate and overly optimistic statements that there was no damage, I bring up the next two words, underground pipes. In short order, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission admitted that there was radiation leaked from North Anna because of the quake, that part of the problem consisted of underground pipes that may have shifted or broken, 
there were casks, storage casks on site that had shifted despite the fact that they weighed close to 50 tons each, and there may have been damage to the core. With all that in mind, we trust that the NRC will do its job and a thorough investigation of the Oak Ridge and TVA sites before declaring them clean and not leaking radiation. But since nuclear reactors leak radiation all the time, that will be impossible to do with a straight face. We'll keep you posted. In Northern California, Pacific Gas and Electric has announced that they're going to need $1.6 billion more to decommission the Diablo Canyon nuclear reactors, and it's going to come from ratepayers' bills between 2020 and 2025. The state of Nevada is trying to stop the federal government from shipping weapons-grade plutonium from the Savannah River site in South Carolina to the Nevada National Security Site, which is located about 90 miles northwest of Las Vegas. The DOE says that the plutonium would only be quote-unquote staged in Nevada before it is moved to the Los Alamos National Laboratory in New Mexico. I'm wondering if they're going to use some of those, you know, Las Vegas headdresses and showgirls and showboys and all the rest. And if they're thinking that staged means it's theater, it's really bad theater because, let's face it, everyone knows that the shortest distance between South Carolina and New Mexico, where they say the waste is ultimately going to go, is through northern Nevada. Not in Idaho. Federal officials will shut down an Idaho nuclear waste treatment project after determining it would not be economically feasible, there's that money factor again, to bring in nuclear waste from other states. Plus, all that transport equals mobile Chernobyl. You don't want it going through your neighborhood. A little bit of good news for the Ogallala Sioux tribe, along with activists who scored a win when federal administrative judges ruled that the Nuclear Regulatory Commission staff had failed to take a hard look at cultural resources in recommending renewal of a uranium mining license for the Crow Butte mine, which is located in Dawes County, Nebraska, adjacent to the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. Unfortunately, it doesn't help that the Trump administration has auctioned off 150,000 acres of public lands for fracking and uranium mining near Utah National Parks. It includes lands within 10 miles of internationally known protected areas, including arches and canyon lands, national parks, Bears Ears, Canyons of the Ancients, and Hovenweep National Monuments, and Glen Canyon National Recreation Area. But wait, there is more bad news from our federal government, and this just missed being numbnuts because it's too important a story to put there. Our current White House resident, Donald Trump, wants to reclassify radioactive waste from nuclear weapons from high level to low level. Why? So disposal is cheaper. Just change one word, it's not even a full word, one half of a hyphenate, and ta-da! You get to save enough money, estimated at $40 billion, to house, feed, and give health care to America's homeless veterans buck up our decaying infrastructure, provide universal health care, and, oh, wait a minute, those don't sound like the priorities. We will have a chart on this to explain the concept on our website, nuclearhotseat.com. This episode is number 391. Over to Japan, where new research has found that over 180 
teenagers and children have been found to have thyroid cancer or suspected cancer following the Fukushima nuclear accident. The observational study group included about 324,000 people aged 18 or younger at the time of the accident. Ultrasound screenings for thyroid cancer were conducted at the Fukushima Health Management Survey, and thyroid cancer or suspected cancer was identified in 187 individuals so far. In May, Japan announced for the first time that a worker at the stricken Fukushima nuclear plant has died after being exposed to radiation. Now, Japan's labor ministry said on Wednesday, December 12, that the thyroid cancer of a different male worker, exposed to radiation after the triple meltdown at Fukushima, has been recognized as a work-related disease. Ya think? The man in his 50s became only the sixth person to be granted a worker's accident compensation insurance payment over cancer caused by the March 2011 nuclear disaster, and he is only the second person to be compensated due to thyroid cancer. He had worked at several nuclear plants for some 11 years since November of 1993, and of his accumulated radiation dose of about 108 millisieverts, he received 100 millisieverts of it after the meltdown. In the ongoing Fukushima food fight, Japan may take Taiwan's Fukushima food import ban to the World Trade Organization. Taiwan voted in a binding referendum on November 25th to continue to maintain its ban on products from Fukushima, Ibaraki, Gumma, Tochigi, and Chiba prefectures in the northeast portion of Japan. But Japan is going to try to ram those products down Taiwan's throats whether they want it or not. And speaking of ingestibles... Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's out of week. If you are overwhelmed with worries about nuclear and in need of a little soothing, as long as you're not in or in need of a 12-step program, it just might be that a hit or two of sake will wash your worries away. Well, that's the hope of the Fukushima government because it has opened a sake shop in New York specializing in the brews of, wait for it, Fukushima. The shop opened its doors on Saturday, December 1st, inside a commercial facility in Manhattan. Officials from the prefecture and the facility celebrated the occasion. I'm sure they did. What a piece of propaganda. The shop offers 50 brands from 11 breweries from the irradiated prefecture. One customer said he's tasted Japanese sake several times before, but none were as good as the ones he tried in the shop. That's because of the radionuclides that add just a a suissant of flavor, not unlike oak, used to flavor a well-aged Cabernet Sauvignon. This customer then said he would like to visit Fukushima someday. That's why they're doing it. It's propaganda in advance of the 2020 Tokyo Radioactive Olympics. Trying to convince the hipsters to come for the sake, stay for the games, and leave with cesium deposited along your digestive tract. Mm-mm-mm. A Fukushima tourism official said breweries from Fukushima are having a hard time finding buyers since the 2011 nuclear disaster and hopes that the shop will boost the image 
of Fukushima Sakes Worldwide. The shop will only operate until March of next year, I believe they mean 2019, which makes it a flat-on propaganda ploy. So for a brief time in Manhattan, you can both experience anxiety from nuclear everything and alleviate it all in a single kumpai. And that's why, Fukushima Government Tourism Office, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. And as an alcoholic footnote to that, California wine made around the time of the Fukushima nuclear disaster has shown trace amounts of cesium-137. The examining team stated that it seems there is an increase in activity in 2011 by a factor of two. Remember to always drink wisely. In Germany on December 6, a fire in a laboratory next to the nuclear power plant in Lingen, Germany, near the Dutch border, was reported to us by longtime listener Chris Enting. The owners of the facility, the Advanced Nuclear Fuels GmbH Company, first responded that the fire was in a part of the building where no radioactive material was present, but a few days later the owners said that that was not correct and the area where the fuel was did contain radioactive material. Fuel rods are made here that are being used in some reactors in Germany and also in Belgium. Listener Enting learned of the accident when his radiation monitor, a Gamma Scout alert, spiked. Some good news through the International Campaign for the Abolition of Nuclear Weapons and its U.S. affiliate, NuclearBan.us. The city of Berkeley, California, received a certificate from NuclearBan.us, officially recognizing Berkeley's alignment with the 2017 U.N. Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. The Berkeley City Council passed a resolution in May of 2018 declaring itself strongly supportive of the United Nations Treaty and proclaiming itself in compliance with the treaty by virtue of its existing nuclear-free status. In Spain, the political party Podemos obtained a commitment from the Spanish government to sign the UN Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. And in Switzerland, both houses of Swiss Parliament have called on their government to join the Nuclear Ban Treaty immediately. Meanwhile, in Canada, Canadian officials have been quietly preparing for the fallout from an atmospheric nuclear weapons test by North Korea, including the spread of radioactive debris across the ocean and the significant public concerns that would arise. Just sign the nuclear weapons ban, Canada. Do what you can. Time to take a tally. We've already survived Black Friday, Small Business Saturday, Cyber Monday, and... I keep forgetting about Giving Tuesday. So now I wonder if the rest of the days of the week are named after Sneezy, Sleepy, Dopey, Gumby, or Nebuchadnezzar. But whatever, it's the holiday season. And if you're in the mood for giving, I'm asking for your help. Let's face it. If you value honest, verifiable information on nuclear issues, providing continuity and context on the stories you care about, delivered with attitude and as much humor as possible, staying slightly within the bounds of good taste, if not sometimes over, then you have come to value Nuclear Hot Seat. I am grateful for the support you, the listeners, continue to give to the show throughout the year, because without your help, we would not be able to continue. Now it's year end, and I realize everyone else is asking, and so am I. So if you're grateful for the information you get from Nuclear Hot Seat, 
Show your support by sending us a donation to help us meet our expenses. You can make it a one-time donation of any amount or a monthly sustaining donation of any amount by going to NuclearHotSeat.com and clicking on the big red Donate button. And for an easy, inexpensive way to help us out, you can send the show a monthly $5. Now, that's just the equivalent of a cup of coffee and a nice tip to a barista. You can do that by going to the website and clicking on the big green Donate button. It will all help keep the information flowing out to you, the listeners. And know that whatever you can afford, you're helping to combat the nuclear menace in all of its forms with solid, footnoted, reliably sourced information. That makes me deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Here's this week's featured interview. Where do committed activists and reliable sources of information come from? Those who try to provide them usually self-nominate through direct connection with some nuclear catastrophe or another. So it is with today's guest. Hervé Courtois, initially known online as De Un Renard, became one of the earliest, steadiest, and most reliable sources of information on Fukushima, translated from the Japanese, as well as other international stories. And he remains so today. Hervé's Virtually daily posts have become part of Nuclear Hot Seat's regular news feed almost from the start of this show. Now, I have tried to land him for an interview more times than I can count, and he always ducked out, which is easy because he lives in France and I'm here in the U.S. But at the International Uranium Film Festival in Window Rock, Arizona, Hervé was there live and in person, and so was I. It took me three days of him always having an excuse not to talk. But then I told him I needed some computer help to watch a film he had given me, which I did. And then once he was in my room, there was no way he was leaving without giving me an answer. I virtually barred the door by where I was sitting in a very wide chair. I think you'll catch the bounce and the energy of it as you listen to me finally interviewing Hervé Courtois of nuclear-news.net deunrenard.wordpress.com, The Rainbow Warriors on Facebook, and so much more. Hervé Courtois, I've wanted to speak with you in person for so long and didn't know how it would happen, and by God, it has happened here at Window Rock. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you. Thank you, Libby Alibi. Tell us first, how did you get so involved with Fukushima? Well, the main thing was my daughter. My daughter is French-Japanese. She grew up in Fukushima, and she lives in Iwaki City, which is 31 miles on the coast south of Fukushima Daiichi, after the disaster started in March 2011. I worried what was going on there, so I went in June, and I spent the whole month of June. At that time, was she still living in Iwaki? She was still living in Iwaki. They were lucky and unlucky. They were the part of Iwaki City, the place they had the house, was the part of Iwaki which is nearest to the coast. So their area was completely devastated by the tsunami. The tsunami. So they lost their house. The luck that they had is when that happened, all of the family members were in Iwaki. The center, downtown of Iwaki, is a bit far away from the coast. So all of them were safe 
If they had been in that house, they would be all dead today. So when I was on location, first I was amazed how ignorant I was. Because when I arrived in Tokyo, before to go to Iwaki City on location, and I didn't know how was the situation, how was dangerous, the radiation there, etc. I went to the French embassy where they had an office which was dealing, because most of the foreigners, expats living in Japan or in Tokyo, they had all left. They all left Japan in March 11. Some came back after a few months, but most of them were, are gone. They were worrying. And the French embassy had a section to handle the nuclear situation for the French resident in Japan. And when I went there, I asked them, what's the situation there? I'm going there. And they tell me, well, we will give you iodine potassium tablet. And it was army stock because in France you cannot buy those tablets in normal pharmacy. It's only the military, the government who have such stock. So the woman who was in charge of that section, she gave me a tablet. I said, well, it's very nice, but how long it will protect me because I intend to stay one month there. So she looked at me barefaced like I could hear her cogwheels in her brain. And then she told me, well, I'll give you two. <laughs> so actually, even the people who were in charge of the radiation situation, nuclear situation at the French embassy, they were as ignorant as me. And then they told me to not eat vegetables, okay, to stay away from the vegetable. Very fine. So I say, what else I could eat? They tell me, okay, beef, because the beef of Iyaki, of uh, Fukushima, is... In the olden days, I mean, before the nuclear disaster, Fukushima was supplying all the beef to Tokyo. So she told me, well, eat some beef. So while I was in Fukushima, I eat beef to discover later on that they were eating contaminated air, <laughs> that it was as bad as eating vegetables. It sounds like you were getting really bad advice, really bad yeah. information. What did you do to try and find out some better facts. Mm, I had no time. I was right there in Japan and I was going there to, to look for my daughter. So when I arrived there, first I realized how ignorant I was about nuclear or radiation. Even I come from a, a country, France, which is very nuclearized, one of the most nuclearized country in the world. Plus, it's the business of the, of the state. It, uh, it's a state-controlled industry in France. They want to sell it just everywhere, the fuel or the nuke plants, etc. Actually, in our education courses, they don't teach us much about radiation or radiation protection because if they would teach us the fact, maybe the French will, will be horrified to have so many <laughs> nuclear plants in their backyard. You know? So anyway, I first realized how ignorant I was. Second shock is to discover that the people who are at the foremost dangerous position, the Fukushima people, like Iwaki is just 30 miles from the nuclear plant, they did not know what was really going on in the nuclear plant. Remember, in those days, TEPCO was still lying to everybody that it's all under control, it's cold shut down. It took them something like four or five months more to finally admit 
that they have no control to it and they are three meltdown. Okay? So first the media was not telling to the people. The people were not going out of the houses. They were avoiding to move out in the street. And all of them were telling me to not touch the metallic parts like the doorknob, the car. Don't touch anything metallic. Don't touch anything metallic. That's the only thing they were conscious. But besides that, they were as ignorant as me. And especially the, the Japanese government the Japanese media, and of course, TEPCO, was not telling what was going on inside the plant, what was the danger, how they should protect themselves, etc. So that was my experience during one month I stayed there, is, is to see that when there is a nuclear disaster occurring, the people who are the first concerned by the disaster, the most at risk, they are not, as they say, informed by the government or by the media. It's all lies, cover-up, denial. Everything is fine. And also like the potassium iodine tablet, it's a complete nonsense because now, after getting many years educated, I know it only protects your thyroid gland and nothing else. And when a nuclear accident happens, usually you are the last to be informed. So you should take, the embassy had told me, I should take that iodine tablet four hours before to reach Fukushima on the Shinkansen train, before to arrive in Fukushima. But if you are a resident of Fukushima and the accident occurs and there is a plume or radiation, they don't inform you. You know it one day later or 12 hours later. You already have been <laughs> irradiated. So those iodine tablets, even if they had been distributed, they had not been distributed. The local government had it, like the, the Fukushima University, medical university, they did not distribute it. They use it for their own selves, but they did not distribute it to the population. So having had that experience being really at the scene when the worst of the post-disaster time was, was rolling out and people didn't have solid information. What did you do to start researching it and what were your decisions about what you were doing with the information you were finding? The second part is when I went back to France. When I went back to France in late June, beginning July 2011, all the French media were pretending Fukushima is already fine. It's finished. It finished at the end of March. Everything is under control. <laughs> Fukushima is now okay. Fukushima, not a word. It's already over. I faced the same cover-up, lack of information, denial about Fukushima in Japan and in France when I went home. It was the same here in the United States. Yes, for sure. In the United States, they were even one step better. They turned off the monitor of the EPA, if I remember well. Yes, they, yeah, they <laughs> did turn off the monitors on the West Coast from yeah. the EPA. I mean, that was really sweet. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, my youngest daughter, not my Japanese daughter, my youngest, which is Filipina, she had made me a Facebook account in 2008. 
But I'd never been on Facebook. I'd never had used that account. Anyway, I went on internet first to look for some some information about radiation, radiation protection, which I wanted to forward to my Japanese daughter. So I wanted to educate myself, radio protection, to teach my daughter in Japan how she could protect herself or what medicine or what to take. And then somebody, a friend of mine who was on Facebook, he directed me to a, a French-speaking Facebook group which was called Fukushima Information. So I entered that group, but quickly I was researching and I was finding more information in English than in French. So on that French group, I wanted to post both French article or English article, often the French article translation of the English article five days later or a week later. But the administrator didn't want people to post in English. He wanted the group to be only with French posts. So I got out of that group and at the same time another person who, who was a French shipbuilder and whose wife German was sick, general cancer from Chernobyl, he contacted me and he offered me to become a co-admin with him on a group that he had with 32 members which is called Fukushima Daiichi, the name of the nuclear plant. So I accepted, but I told him, yes, but could I post also in English? And he tells sure, if you join, you, you do as you wish. So I started to post in English and French. And just in one month's time, we went from 32 members to 2003 members. And at the same time, there was a, a Frenchman who had a restaurant in Tokyo with a Japanese wife and two children, and who had made a, a small group called Evacuate Fukushima, who wanted the children of Fukushima to evacuate. And he had sent his Japanese wife and two children to France right there in March. He stayed behind to sell his restaurant in Tokyo, in the embassy district, a posh restaurant. And him and me were posting more at the same vision. So we decided to combine both groups, and that's how Fukushima 311 Watchdog was born. And that was the group by which you started to become known on yes. Facebook very yes. widely. Yes, and the first year was very exhausting because it was day and night uh, turning information, and at the same time I had to educate myself about nuclear radiation, etc. So it was a, a very exhausting year. With that other Frenchman, he finally came back to after he sold his restaurant in November. But when he had arrived in November, we had just to French life, what he will do. His two daughters and wife he had not seen for a few months, so he was busy. Anyway, I had a divergence of opinion with him because I wanted also to post about other nuclear aspects. Meaning more than just Fukushima Daiichi? Yes. Because, example, the depleted uranium victims in Iraq, the children who are affected by depleted uranium in, in Iraq, or in Africa, the, the French mining in Mali and Niger, etc. And he wanted the group to be only on Fukushima. And I told him, for me, even my own blood 
blood and flesh. My daughter is half Japanese and in Fukushima. The children of Fukushima to me are as much important as the children in Iraq who are victims of depleted uranium weapons of the Americans. And at the same time, he started also his own blog, Evacuate Fukushima blog on WordPress. I started a blog to Fukushima Channel, but I was very ignorant also about computer and programming, etc. I had a young student in my town who wrote me a, a software, a program, a website, but I had to post article in HTLM language, which was very time taken for a beginner like me. I remember those days, and that's why I've been on a Mac. Yeah. yeah. So I did that up to June 2012. June 2012, I was a wreck. I was really exhausted. And also because I didn't want to be the only admin on a group, I had invited many people from different countries to be admin. And some of my admin were arguing among each other. And I decided to have a break. I closed the group, Fukushima 300. We had 3,700 members at that time. I closed down the group and I took one month's rest. I also closed down the blog because the blog was costing me money. It was a paying. I had to pay it to be on a, a server. I'd also paid the student to write it from my pocket. And I thought to reopen a group, but to open it more widely, more with broad-minded, meaning to say, if you deal only with nuclear, and only Fukushima, only nuclear, I have noticed people start to become obsessed with it, going into God knows conspiracy or fantasy theories or, or becoming depressed or su suicidal, some, some of them. And... Some of them afraid by the activism or the militantism, yeah, activism of anti-nuclear. So I thought it would be more wise to make a group with a more broad scope where you are also dealing with the environmental problems, climate change, GMOs, etc. But you still post about Fukushima and nuclear so that the people who are interested in GMOs or in environment or plastic pollution or etc., they would come to our group and at the same time be educated on nuclear problems little by little. It's more smooth, more diplomatic, and people don't become so obsessed like some of the activists in nuclear who scare everybody else. And I decided to reopen that group and to, to call it the Rainbow Warriors. Why the Rainbow Warriors? because of the French government who had blown that Greenpeace ship in New Zealand in the 1980s. The French government were doing atomic tests in the French Polynesia and Greenpeace has a ship with different sensors which would go near to measure the intensity of the explosion under the sea. That ship was in the harbor in Asia Auckland, New Zealand and some uh, secret service from the French government, they went there and they put some explosive. And when the ship, the ship was supposed to leave out of the harbor, but some, somehow there was a delay and the ship blew up in the harbor of Auckland. And that ship name was called Rainbow Warriors. So in memory 
of the terrorist action of the pro-nuclear French government. I like the name to call that group the Rainbow Warriors, plus also because of this supposedly Amerindian myth or legend that when the world will have many troubles, many calamities, some people from different colors will come to save the world and they'll be the, the Rainbow Warriors. Then from 2012 until now, I continued on Rainbow Warriors and some other anti-nuclear groups in English, uh, in the US or in, in France. And I reopened a blog, which is on WordPress and where I don't have to post in <laughs> HTLM anymore, <laughs> so it's much easier. And then I was invited by Sean Akrai, who was at that time living in London, and he invited me on Nuclear News with the founder of the blog, uh, Christina McPherson from Australia. So I continued my blog, Fukushima 311 Watchdog, keeping the public page, Fukushima 311 Watchdog, the group Rainbow Warriors, and Nuclear News, the international blog. This is sounding like pretty much a full-time job with a lot of overtime in it, with no pay. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Especially if you have a lousy laptop to work with, it could take you 24 hours a day. <laughs> what is it that keeps you going doing this work? Well, first of all, like my partner, the one who founded with me Fukushima 311 watchdog group, Nelson Surgeon, two years ago, he threw the gloves. He said, that's it, I stop. When you have developed when you have been investing almost eight years of your time on something, it's also a little bit you have some responsibilities to it, or it's a little bit a baby to you, you know. You don't want to let it go. And also many people start to depend on the information. Also you receive many private messages from people thanking you, you know, for the blog or for your public page you start to feel that what you do has some value to some people. Also, the information that we were moving in 2011, me and some others, had an effect because we forced the Fukushima Daiichi TEPCO little by little. Example, Rema Salas was a very good uh, detective on examining, checking out the pictures some of the Photoshop pictures that TEPCO was publishing and catching them right with their pants down, lying, using Photoshop pictures or discovering what they were doing. So we forced them to start to admit to their lies and we could not stop. We had to continue because once you know they want to hide the truth to the people, you cannot just let it go because it's for the welfare of everybody. Locally in Japan, my daughter is right there, but also for anybody else. And also to educate people in other countries how their life will be changed when something like that happens in their backyard. Because you know how the people are. It's always happened to the other, not to me. Until it does. Until it does. Like me too, I was like that. I was never interested in, in anti-nuclear 
I had different little business, doing my own little business, earning money, having my own little happy life, and not worrying about the environment or nuclear or anything for most of my life, I must say. But when it touched and threatened my daughter, especially a daughter who, through divorce, I was not able to be as much present as I would have wanted. I feel an obligation toward her to be there and to fight that nuclear beast who has been damaging her life in many ways. To give you an example, she doesn't want to marry. She doesn't want to get children because she doesn't know how the children would be. And of course, not wanting to have children and being from Fukushima, she's like a tainted good, a, call that, a damaged good to the eyes of many other men from Fukushima or not from Fukushima. It has affected so many people. What brought you here to Window Rock for the International Uranium Film Festival? Well, I've seen you going to two festivals in Montreal and also in Los Angeles. And I was visiting some friends this time in Texas. And that friend works in Texas but has a condo in Arizona and she goes once a year to check on her condo. So when I found out that this year it would be in the southwest, in Window Rock, capital of the Navarro Nation, I said, well, we should go there. I want to go there. This time, I don't want to miss it. Plus, for more than something like 15 years in Philippines, I was an antique dealer, tribal antique dealer, and I lived many, many years in tribal areas studying the prehistory, the culture, their values, their different set of values, even from normal Filipinos. And I've always been attracted by the, what in French we call ethnography, but what you American I think, call cultural anthropology. And because all these tribes, they still have some values that somehow our modern world has dropped on the way. You know, where are the moral value of our modern societies today? Mm-hmm. So that this festival would be held by a Native American nation. Already that in itself was appealing, plus an anti-nuclear war. I have been hoping to meet more people like Star Priscilla or Robert Sherwink or some other people, but at least I meet you So that after all these years. So at least one is, is better than none. <laughs> and, I, and I've met many beautiful people today, I mean, during these three days. And also, it brought more education to my anti-nuclear, we say in French, militantism, which means activist. Because I may be an expert on Fukushima after eight years, day and night, every day, every week. But I still have many shortcomings about nuclear, like the mining industry in different places, the repository, even we have one in France, and it's getting very tough. They are pressing charge, criminal charge, on some of my friends who are activists in the village where they have this repository, up to three years imprisonment, you know, for activists. So I learned many things about the mining operation for the past 70 years in the, the American Southwest. And also some other film, like today, Greenland, 
you know, in Greenland. Yeah, it was very edu- still educative. It was pleasurable and educative. Any last thing that you want to add? Well, the only one thing I want to add is I salute you because you have also on your side accomplished a fantastic job in the past eight years. You're interviewing all these people who are involved at different levels of the nuclear industry and keeping on educating people through your podcast. That's really, you did a great job. Congratulations, Libby. I'll give you a kiss. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect end. And it was both a perfect and an unprecedented way to end an interview with a kiss from a Frenchman. Hervé Courtois of nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, the Rainbow Warriors group on Facebook, and so much more. I urge you to check out his sites, as they will provide you with a rich flow of information that you can trust. Activist shout-outs! This was sent out by Beyond Nuclear. In response to a request by 76 environmental groups, the U.S. Department of Energy has granted until January 9, 2019, for the public to comment on the agency's proposal to deregulate high-level radioactive wastes and allow for their abandonment in situ at such places as the Hanford Nuclear Weapons Reservation on the Columbia River in Washington State, the West Valley Reprocessing Facility upstream of the Great Lakes in New York, and elsewhere. For more information, including instructions on how to submit comments, you can see DOE's Federal Register Notice or... Easier than that, we will just provide a link on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 391. There will also be sample comments you can use to prepare your own that will be posted at the top of Beyond Nuclear's Radioactive Waste website section. There will be a link to that, too. And congratulations are in order to Aaron Connolly and Kate Hewitt, because the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists has named them its 2018 Leonard M. Reiser Award recipients. This is for their June 11 essay, American Students Aren't Taught Nuclear Weapons Policy in School, Here's How to Fix That Problem. The article was selected by the Bulletin's editorial team from its Voices of Tomorrow column a column that promotes rising experts who write with distinction on topics including nuclear risk, climate change, and disruptive technologies. In their award-winning article, the authors detail their efforts to educate high school and college students about nuclear weapons by visiting classrooms in Washington State's Tri-Cities area. That's right around the Hanford site. And they delivered 22 presentations over the course of four days. Editor-in-chief of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientist, John Mecklin, said, This article is sophisticated in its thinking, accessible in its writing, and aimed at solving a problem rather than wallowing in it. These two young women received a $1,000 cash prize, and we will link to their article on our website. Here's today's final thought. A few reflections in the wake of having attended the International Uranium Film Festival in Window Rock, Arizona. There was an image used by several people there that I have picked up, comparing nuclear to a hydra-headed beast a mythological animal having multiple heads, all of which need to be cut off in order for it to die. And if I'm remembering my mythology correctly, if all the heads are not cut off, the others will grow back 
as fierce and deadly as before. The term is used to mean a problem with many facets or aspects, one that is particularly difficult or intractable to solve. If that doesn't describe nuclear, I don't know what does. As was made clear to me at Window Rock, the heads of this monster include every part of the supply chain, mining, transport, refining and manufacturing, power reactors, waste, and of course, all of that is done in support of nuclear weapons. I'd not been as aware as I might have been of the dangers and incursions from mining, but the films I saw woke me up to the magnitude of that part of the problem and how it has devastated Native people, including and especially the Diné or Navajo Nation. All these heads of the Hydra are important. None can be neglected. Well, we've tried. As we've seen, even the Three Mile Island nuclear disaster did not knock out nuclear. It just temporarily dented it and slowed it down. The resurgence of this deadly technology through rebranding it as carbon-free and thus somehow, in some warped corner of the universe, clean, has shown just how the nuclear hydra's head grew back and continues to grow. Uranium mining was flat because the worldwide stocks of the mineral were enormous, depressing the price and making mining unprofitable, which is why it stopped, the dollar being the ultimate measure of whether something is good to do or not, especially in the nuclear world. So Trump raised tariffs on uranium imports, artificially inflating the price, and then auctioned off formerly protected lands in Bears Ears and Escalante National Monuments, formerly protective lands. Now it's said that it's being done for fracking, which is what always gets mentioned, but it's also being done for uranium mining, which doesn't get mentioned. And so these heads of the hydra are growing back. To use another analogy, perhaps a more common one, it can sometimes feel as if getting rid of nuclear is like a never-ending game of whack-a-mole, with the little buggers popping up faster than we can get rid of them. Still, we've got to do it. We've got to try. And keep trying. The bonus is that, in the process, we get to join together with good people from around the world. People who are making films about their concerns, talking out, staging protests, attending boring meetings with government and agency, and calling out the entire nuclear industry. Yeah, we're up against a hydra. It's St. George and the Dragon, David and Goliath. We are going up against a monster here. But I just want to remind you, in both these cases, both St. George and David won. And as long as we keep going, we will too. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, December 18, 2018. Material from this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, now you know where that's coming from, miningawareness.wordpress.com, fukuleaks.org and Nancy Faust, Dr. Gordon Edwards and ccnr.org, fairwinds.org, latimes.com, the Tennessee Valley Authority, KnoxNews.com, SanLuisObisbo.com, KTNV.com, WhiteWolfPack.com, EcoWatch.com, MavenRoundTable.io, Newsweek.com, 
BigThink.com, DefenseNews.com, TheJournal.ie, JapanTimes.co.jp, DailyStar.co.jp. Special correspondent Chris Enting in Germany, Bologna.org, BeyondNuclear.org, ABC.net.au, TechnologyReview.com, TheGlobeAndMail.com, NuclearBand.us, ICANN.org, which is the international campaign for the abolition of nuclear weapons, the soul-dead cubicle drones who grind out press releases for world nuclear news and who in some dark night of the soul will suddenly realize with dread and horror exactly what they've been doing with their lives, the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and a big shout-out to Nuclear Hot Seat listeners and followers around the world, all of you in 123 countries on six continents and counting. And my thanks to everyone who's listening on our growing network of broadcast stations around the U.S. You are my people. That's because you show your love for life on this planet by being willing to know the truth and then acting on it. I am so glad I am with you on this journey together as we are kick-ass defenders of nuclear truth and supporters of atomic awareness and shutting those buggers down. Thank you for visiting the Facebook Nuclear Hot Seat blog page. If you haven't stepped by yet, come on down and check it out. Click like, follow, post, and share. You can find our back episodes, all 390 of them, at NuclearHotSeat.com. If when you put in the URL, you add slash blog, you'll be able to scan 10 episodes at a time. You can add slash book to learn about my book, Yes, I Glow in the Dark, One Mile from Three Mile Island to Fukushima and Nuclear Hot Seat. And if you scroll down on that page to the big yellow box and put in your first name and your email address, you will be sent a link once a week via email to each week's Nuclear Hot Seat episode and a brief write-up of what is in it. That way you never need miss another episode ever again. Now, if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment to send a donation of any size to NuclearHotSeat.com. We really appreciate and need your support. Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2018, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that, as Margaret Mead said, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. There you go. That is your nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.